Shabbat to one and all. Particularly, we'd like to welcome those who are listening in from Philadelphia, which has been the social media outreach uh, the uh, the last few days. We thank you uh, for that. Uh, I want to begin with a few items in the news. I mentioned, Kirk, a week ago that mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Amnesty International and their uh, opinion of uh, Israel as an apartheid state in Israel responded said you're anti-Semitic and of course they threw a tizzy fit and I said no it's not anti-Semitism it's just rampant progressive stupidity uh, to mm-hmm. be a progressive and that's what's happened with Amnesty International is a good organization that has been usurped by extreme uh, liberals to be a progressive evidence and reason no longer matter the only thing that matters is the progressive uh, agenda uh, and so all evidence is contrary to their uh, their conclusion. Uh, not that it matters, again, if you're progressive, uh, you cannot be persuaded, just like a religious person, you cannot be persuaded mm-hmm. by evidence and reason. Uh, there was an article uh, presented in the Jerusalem Post, which, by the way, is a progressive newspaper. So it is, it is yeah. about as liberal as they come. Um, I like it because uh, it... I, I know their perspective, and therefore it's uh, it's uh, easy to um, uh, to discern uh, uh, truth from mm-hmm. fiction. This particular uh, uh, article, though, was very well written. It said that the progressives uh, care more about hating Israel than the well-being of the they call them Palestinians. I'm going to use the correct term, Palestinians, uh, because if they cared for the Palestinians. Uh, there is no such thing as a Palestinian, so let's not buy into the myth of that stupidity. Yeah. Uh, they would act against the corrupt Palestinian leadership that does nothing to help them, that steals public money and incites hatred and violence against Israel, even against their own people. In fact, uh, today there are riots, territories, because Fatah, the PLO, uh, murdered a... Uh, a dissenter, somebody that had the good sense to say that 
Fatah and the PLO are doing nothing but uh, stealing the money that is being given by the West uh, and squandering it rather than um, improving the lives of the fake Indians. So the reality is that in um, Israel, the Mm -hmm. fake Indians receive an enormous uh, amount from the Israeli government. Their water comes from mm-hmm. the Israeli government. Their electricity comes from Israel. Their jobs come from Israel. Their health care comes from Israel. And anything in terms of a real education comes from Israel. Uh, so for someone to say that that is how apartheid looks, when they can vote, they uh, um, can receive health care. They can receive an education. They can uh, uh, work at, at virtually any job. Mm-hmm. It, it's a disgrace the actual, right. uh, actual term uh, that exists. Now, just imagine, this article says, what the Palestinian leaders could have done with the billions that were sent to them in aid from the EU, Canada, the United States, and of course the Arab countries, had they not used it to sponsor terrorism with the pay-to-slay program or other corrupt reasons. Yeah. Author says, when I visited the uh, Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem, I saw Pakistanian patients from Gaza, from Gaza receiving life-saving treatments from Israeli doctors. And I saw the Pakistanians from East Jerusalem working as doctors and nurses. There's a thriving business cooperation between Israeli and Pakistanian businesses. That's not what apartheid looks like. Are you absolutely crazy? 93% of the so-called Pakistanians living in East Jerusalem prefer to live under an Israeli government than a Palestinian one. 93% prefer Hmm. to live under an Israeli government than a Palestinian one. So if you want to talk about apartheid, it's the PLO. These are the people. These are the facts. Open your damn eyes. Speaking of stupidity, the United States has essentially punched the bully in the snaz, spit at him and taunted him, taken away all of his toys, thrown sand in his face, said na 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 na, and then pretends to be the peacemaker. I mean, that is what we have done in the Ukraine. Every day there's a new article. Oh, my God, they're going to invade. Oh, my God, now they have the troops. The same number of troops has been there for a month. Oh, but they've just reached the troop level that they can now invade. Oh, they could be in, in Kiev in, in two weeks. Oh, my God, we're being the, the diplomats and they're being the belligerents. Let me tell you a little story. 1962, I think, 
was the year. Khrushchev decided that the best plan of action to protect the Soviet Union from NATO aggression put missiles in Cuba. Do you know why he did so? Scare the heck out of us. Pardon? Do you know why he did so? If you don't know why he did so, you got no business whatsoever commenting on the situation in the Ukraine with the United States arming the Ukraine and wanting the Ukraine to be part of NATO. The reason Khrushchev put missiles in Cuba is because the United States did the dumbest thing in the history of stupid things. We took an Islamic country and made them part of of NATO. Turkey. And then you know what we did after we made them part of Turkey? We put nuclear missiles in Turkey right along the Russian border. So what did the Russians do? The only intelligent thing they could do. They put missiles in Cuba and say, okay, tit for tat. Oh, and then Kennedy, because he was so handsome, everyone believed that he won the Cuban Missile Crisis because he had those dastardly, aggressive, warlike Ruskies who we despise because they're the Ruskies removed their threatening ballistic missiles from Cuba. I won't tell you the two essential aspects of that story that play enormously into what's going on in the Ukraine. The United States not only signed a letter saying that the United States pledges that it will never invade Cuba, You know what we also did? We removed the missiles from Turkey. Oh, of course we did. Of course we did. It it was kept as a national secret for over 20 years. We removed the missiles from Turkey. Now, look at the Ukraine. We started the damn revolution. We overturned the popularly elected uh, government. We installed a government beholding to ourselves. We... We sponsor that government, costing the American taxpayer about $10 billion a year. They're corrupt as they can possibly be there. And now we arm them, threatening to make them part of NATO right along the Russian border. And all Russia says is, don't do that. We played this game before. It does not turn out well. Stop it. Oh, and the United States said, that's non-starter. We can do whatever we damn well please. Want to be part of NATO? We'll make them part of NATO. We want to arm them? We'll make them part of, of, uh, of our military aggressiveness towards you. And then we badger them and we threaten them when, in fact, we're at fault. And Americans, I mean, we are so damn naive, don't seem to give a damn and would believe the American propaganda that Putin is the aggressor. He's doing everything he can to encourage America to do the right thing. And America is incapable of doing it. In fact, we're sending thousands upon thousands of U.S. troops to NATO nations that were part of the Eastern Bloc, that border with the Ukraine and sending more weapons to the Ukraine. And the only thing that can happen from that is World War III. It is so 
unbelievably stupid. The only thing that could happen worse than all of this is this weekend at Bernie's with the comatose President of the United States finally croaking, and we, uh, we have to endure, as Commander-in-Chief, the most belligerent, angry, nasty, unqualified woman, I use that term loosely, as President of the United States. But that, my friends, is where we are. All right, now, I want to share something with you that was, uh, uh, before we return to uh, where we were and um, and Zachary, Mm -hmm. I shared a little bit of this with Kirk with you at the beginning of the show, and you said, I think we need to open with it. Uh, I do. I didn't didn't share with you the whole thing that uh, uh, it's the, this is now the opening of, uh, I might as well just share it with you in in its entirety. This is the opening of the Kathab. It is written 10th chapter of volume three of an introduction to God. First of all, uh, that reminds me, I want to thank both uh, uh, Jackie uh, also, uh, Mike for fact-checking, Molly and Todd for uh, for editing, uh, and uh, J.K. also for editing, and for uh, and David for getting the uh, I think it's seven or eight chapters of Volume Three of uh, of an Introduction to God, which covers the 119th Psalm. They are now posted on the site. So if you look. <laughs> The first three uh, volumes now of uh, on that bookshelf, which is now very long, on the yadayah.com site. Uh, the first of the the three is words, the second of the three is instructions, and the third is Torah, and it uh, covers the 119th Psalm. But that's not the end of Volume Three of an Introduction to God. It turns from there to the prophets. This is now chapter 10. I begin by sharing that I I admire Moshe. I could feast on his Torah between now and Yah's return. I have been accused, Kirk, as you know, of having a bromance Mm -hmm. with doubt because I find his life and lyrics to be inspiring, especially as he waxes poetic about his relationship with Yahweh throughout his Mizmor and Mashal. Psalms and Proverbs. But I find a special kinship with Yashaya. For a long time now, it has seemed as if I am serving as his apprentice, a latter-day witness to the pertinence of this great man's prophecies. Yahweh inspired him to scribe on our behalf, and... It is as if they were all written for us, just for this moment in time. In Yahshua's words, we find a retelling of Israelite history, explaining how God's people ended up in such a horrible situation. We learn about the great intermission when Yahweh and his Torah were concealed from Yehudim all because they had proven that they could not be trusted. But then, in the midst of chastising Israel's political and religious leadership, Yahshua reveals that Yahweh's Shem, his Torah, Bereth, and Mikre, 
will become known and appreciated once again. There will be a reunion. So the question lingers. Who will be there and how many will remain? As we approach Yahweh's return on the Day of Reconciliations, it has become obvious that the irritating and shrill voices of the rabbis will persist and they will continue to blame everyone other than themselves. While their plight, if we've learned anything up to this point, Yahweh says that he is not amused. Truly, popes, cardinals, bishops, priests, pastors, gurus, and imams are going to all feel the sting of divine retribution. But there is a special place in Sheol, hell, awaiting rabbis. Yashaya speaks vociferously of the time of Jacob's troubles. Life is going to get very dark for Jews before the arrival of the light. God's homecoming will, therefore, be a time of celebration and anguish, depending on one's perception of the Torah, its covenant, and invitations. In essence, Yashaya's prophetic expose is a referendum on religion versus relationship. One is condemned while the other is extolled. As we move towards the next prophetic statement regarding the Torah, we're again confronted by the consequence of religion and how the institution has thwarted the Torah's purpose. After telling us that Yahweh will soon pass over the land like a bulldozer, destroying everything corrupt and perverted, religious and political, polluted and diseased, God reveals that the trash being swept away to clear the land is for the celebration of Sukkah. And it includes people. Lots and lots of people not enjoying Sukkah, but being swept away. What I'm about to share, Kirk, is not pleasant. Mm -hmm. And that is because there is no longer any reason for Yahweh to be patient. He is not pleased with his people. The era of man's control must end for the time of God's liberation to begin. I'm going to begin reading at the opening of the 24th chapter of Yashaya, which means Yahweh liberates and saves. This is 24.1. Behold, right here and right now, Hena, Yahweh will reconstitute a depopulated Bagak. He will plow through to reestablish healthy growth, clearing the way for luxuriant and profuse development again throughout the land and the earth, stripping it. So he will stagger the perverse on its surface shattering and removing those who remain living there. you catch that? Behold, right here and right now, Yahweh will reconstitute a depopulated land and earth, stripping it. 
So he will stagger the perverse on its surface, scattering and removing those who remain living there. The priests and their people. The lords and their workers, the maids and the mistresses, the buyers and sellers, the lenders and debtors, the deceivers as well as the deluded will all suffer the same fate. And it will be as with the priest and cleric, likewise with the people. As one works and is uh, controlled, likewise those who control him. The Lord to claim authorization over him. As with the maid, the woman in the workplace, likewise with her mistress and boss. As with the buyer, likewise with the seller. As with the lender, so likewise the borrower. As with the one deceiving, likewise with the debtor who is deluded with him. This is something we'd be wise to acknowledge. Yes, those who have profited from religion will be devastated by God. But they're going to be taking believers down with them. The elite will be humbled, but swept away with them will be those they controlled, the deceived, along with those who deluded them. Therefore, only those who have sought and obtained liberation in the covenant and through the invitations will survive. The land and the earth will be substantially depopulated so that it can recover and grow again. Bakak, Bakak will be slept clean to allow new growth, clearing the way for a productive environment because it has been plundered and spoiled. This is certain because Yahweh has spoken, declaring this message. Bakak was repeated, as was Bazaz, telling us that these verbs should be expressed to the maximum extent. In the case of Ba'ak, this affirms something expressed in Yahweh's opening statement, where he used it to say that he will reconstitute a depopulated earth, plowing and clearing it to reestablish healthy growth. This means that the reason that the religious and political, the patriotic and conspiratorial, are being removed and the earth is being depopulated is that he is returning the planet to the very conditions experienced in Gan Eden, the Garden of Great Joy. As we camp out with God during the thousand-year celebration of Sukkah, beginning at sunset on the Shabbat evening of October 7, 2033, the earth will be vibrant with new growth. The waters will run clean and the skies will be clear. One of the reasons that Yahweh is cleaning house is explained through Bazaz Bazaz. The earth has become plundered and spoiled by countless wars, and far too many people have been enslaved by the victors. 
Should you believe that Yahweh is overreacting and that he has no right to clean his planet by depopulating the earth and sweeping man's debris away in preparation for camping out with his family? I would encourage you to consider this from, first of all, it is his. It's his universe, including the life within it. And it is his family for which he is responsible. Therefore, as long as he honors his promises, is consistent and correct, he can do with it and us as he sees fit, especially since he is not depriving anyone of anything beyond what he has already provided. In an entitlement world, it's hard for many to understand this concept. So I'm going to try uh, foisting a, a, a number of examples and see if I can explain it. Okay. All right, Kirk. If I were to find you hungry and I were to share a fish with you that I caught each day mm-hmm. for a week, but then I stopped when I saw you squandering it by letting it rot, I don't think I'd be depriving you of anything, even if you... Even if you starved. Likewise, what if you were not working and I was gainfully employed, such that I decided to give you $1,000 a week? But then, what if I saw that even though you were capable of earning a living, that you were more interested in buying drugs and alcohol, beating up on, uh, on your spouse, poor Terry, belittling uh, your uh, children in their neighborhood, stirring up mm-hmm. trouble. Kicking my dog. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. I be doing the decent people in the community a favor by no longer enabling your harassment of them? No argument there. So let's take it one step further. What if you smoked and uh, you drank and you ate yourself into a serious heart condition. And I covered the considerable cost to keep you alive, sponsoring expensive operations and drugs, only to see you continue to smoke, drink, and eat too many unhealthy foods. Should I continue to support your depravity? Or should I invest my time and energy, money, doing something worthwhile? Agreed. God gave us this planet. Ladder. We mm-hmm. have polluted it. He gave us life and we have abused it. Time's up. Yes. He's done giving us the opportunity to ruin what he created. Now, second, as a father, Yahweh has a responsibility to protect his family. Yeah, he's the rats that are scurrying around in his home are diseased. Should he allow them to stay, they will plague his people the very people he has vowed to protect. Third, Yahweh's already told us what he wants. Mm -hmm. And what he wants is a return to where we began our relationship with him in the Gan Eden. In it, the garden and the relationship flourished without religion or politics and thus without deceit or dying. Sukkah is about our return to God 
and return to Eden. Now, for a moment, just forget about all of the justifications and explanations. You now know what's going to occur, that the earth is going to be depopulated for it to be restored. You know what is going to happen and why it will transpire as God has vowed. If you are sufficiently interested in knowing Yahweh to have listened to these broadcasts, to have read these books, I suspect that you're intelligent enough to be among the beneficiaries rather than the victims on this day. Tell your friends, tell your family that you're going to celebrate Yahweh's return and that you would encourage them to join with us. If anything, been patient too long. Giving mankind more than enough time to destroy the planet and all life on it. He says, the land is drying up and it's grieving and the earth is withered from being disrespected. The world, it's exhausted, preoccupied with sexual desire, in a state of decay from being treated with contempt. The people in the highest positions, the most exalted individuals on the earth and in the land, will dwindle down to nothing and fade away. Yashaya. Yahweh liberates 24-4. Now, God's not pleased with uh, mankind's stewardship of the earth. And the first to be held accountable will be those in the loftiest positions. The higher they are, the more precipitous will be the fall. The land will become defiled and polluted under her inhabitants. This is because they will pass over and depart from the Torah. Abar was the word. They will pass by and go well beyond seeking to obsolete, effectively overstepping and transgressing the Torah teaching and guidance. They will remove and discard, change and violate clearly communicated and written prescriptions of what we should do in life to live. They have broken and nullified, even come to disassociate from the everlasting and eternal covenant relationship. Yes, the planet is polluted with filthy air, land, and seas, to be sure. But it's also defiled with religion, with politics, and conspiracy, each of which corrupts minds, hearts, and souls. God's going to rid the world he created of each. It is interesting that Yahweh used a bar here as the verb to depict his people's departure from his Torah guidance. They have passed over it, overstepping it with their Talmud. It has been the will of the religious to make God's words obsolete by smothering them with their own. Mm -hmm. As a result, the rabbis have chalaf, altered God's prescriptions for living, discarding his guidance by replacing it with their own. They call their version the Talmud. 
Yahweh has affirmed that his covenant is olam, everlasting and eternal. He has said that it is part of the Torah. The combination of these things in a prophetic statement forever eliminates the possibility of a Jewish Talmud or a Christian New Testament being associated with God. The verb Yashayah, selected to denote his people's breach of the covenant, was parar, to break and nullify. It reveals that Yisrael has left the covenant, having frustrated and thwarted its intent. As a result, it has been suspended, only recently being re-entered again. When Yahweh speaks of a curse, the curse is almost always religious, albeit sometimes political. And even while the consequence is almost always bad, this will be the single most damning episode in human history. As a result, Yahweh says, I'll ken. Eating away and consuming the land and earth is a curse which will necessitate recompense. Then the liability and guilt associated with her inhabitants will result in those who live upon the land and earth being scorched, being reduced in number and diminished in scale by being set aglow. And very few mortal men and women will remain. And very few mortal men and women will remain. It's not the answer I had hoped for, but it is the one I have long anticipated. Very few Yehudim will be willing to cast aside their religion and politics for Yahweh. The reunion will be sweet but small joyous, but sparsely attended. As I share these thoughts with you, my heart is heavy. My breathing has been labored since I translated them yesterday. I feel inadequate, like I'm disappointing Yahweh, as if there were something more I should be doing to awake and inform his people. I am like my brother, Remember that God opened the door to heaven in his presence and there was no one standing there seeking entrance. Mm -hmm. This great man blamed himself for the lack of a result, but it was not his fault. It was and remains theirs. Rather than answer Yahweh's invitations and accept his covenant's conditions, Rabbis and their ilk will strive to discredit me and misrepresent Yashaya. Now, while I remain disappointed, Yashaya is not. He has seen the future, and he knows that between Yisrael and Yahuda and some Goyim, there will be 7,000 ripe olives harvested from the tree. From zero to 7,000 is grounds for celebration for the prophet. 
and for him I'm placed. Each of the 12 references to the Torah and Yahshua Isaiah demonstrate that Yahweh's teaching and guidance remains in effect to influence the last days. These next prophetic announcements drive right to the heart of this issue in no uncertain terms. God is telling Israelites, Israelis, and Yehudim, Jews, defiant, he's calling them defiant, he's calling them obstinate, he's calling them stubborn and rebellious. Now, if, if we were to say that out of the context of citing Yahweh, we'd be called anti-Semitic. Sure. But since we're citing God, and I am quite certain that God is not against the Shem, anti-Shem, his name, which is emblazoned on Yahudem. It's simply the truth. So God is calling Israelis and Jews defiant and obstinate, stubborn and rebellious children. His reason for stating this is that they are acting upon the counsel and advice of other than himself. And worse, they're engaged, creating, and then profiting from such schemes. The best examples of this advice and counsel about God, which is not from God, would be the Babylonian Talmud, the Zohar, the New Testament, and the Quran. However, since Yahweh is referring to these self-indulged and reliant individuals as obstinate children, the offenders are not Goyim, and therefore not Christians or Muslims. Placing this condemnation squarely on the thin, black-clad shoulders of the rabbis. Speaking of them, Yahweh goes on to say that they are not only misguided, but when they pour out a spirited libation, there is no affinity with his spirit. And their toasts of lachayim, to life, they're inferring what they cannot deliver. The sins of the Hasidic remain because they have advanced rabbinical plans over Yahweh's provisions. In a sectarian settings, the rabbis will toast the person having performed a religious rite or mitzvah as yaker koak, straight away strength, as if the religion will empower them. And then recognizing they'll need it, there is the famous mazel tov. Good luck. At the religious prompting, to light a pair of Shabbat candles, one illuminating, the one illuminating them will say, Baruch Atah Adonai, Elohim Melech, Elom Asher, Kitsanu Ba Mitzvah, E Tazinu Lahadik Ner Shel Shabbat. Blessed are you, Lord our God ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with commandments and commanded us to light Shabbat candles. Of course, the issue here is 
that they are antagonizing God, not blessing him, especially by recognizing, by not recognizing, that God's name is Yahweh and that Satan's title is Adonai. Mm -hmm. Yahweh chose his son Dode to be Melech of the heavens and earth, and he has given us instructions, not commandments. Further, he never asked anyone to light a candle, much less two of them, on the Shabbat. It is at this point that Yahweh shares another bone of contentions. Jews have often sought the protection of foreigners, of religious and political tyrants, and it has never worked out very well. They went into the Black Lands twice early on as the covenant was being presented and then later in pursuit of protection from a drought. With Abraham, it nearly cost him his wife. And with his great-grandchildren, the price was 400 years of slavery. So when Yahudu sought Pharaoh's protection against the rise of Babylon, God correctly predicted that it would cost them their sovereignty, something they would not regain for millennia. And more recently, less than 20 years after Israel was reestablished, and after being attacked by Egypt, the young nation negotiated a peace with them. They've tried the same thing with Gaza, which was part of Egypt prior to the Six Days War. This has also blown up in their faces. Yahweh's advice, which Yehudim failed consider is to rely on him for protection rather than on hostile religious and political entities. Now for all of this in Yahweh's words. Whoa. This is a warning. Defiant and stubborn children. Obstinate and rebellious kids. Prophetically announces Yahweh to engage in and carry out counsel and advice that is not from me. And who pour out a libation is part of their covenant, but not my spirit, so that they may attempt to remove and sweep away sin upon sin for having missed the way with the guilt of being wrong. Who have set out to go down to the religious and political oppressors without bothering to ask me for my direction, to take refuge in the protection and shelter of Pharaoh and confide in and rely upon the shadowy association with the crucibles of political and religious oppression. Therefore, it will come to be to your shame to seek the protection of Egypt's dictators and insult and ignominy to confide in and rely upon a shadowy association with the crucibles of political and religious oppression. This is Yahshua 3.3. Now, and 33, I should say, 33. Unless the cards have been scrambled and effaced, why would anyone playing with a full deck disregard Yahweh's advice? and confide in a religious and political despot with a propensity to enslave who thinks he is God when the actual God has offered to help? 
there's a word for such idiocy. Stupid. God says, this is 35. Everything stinks. It all smells odious with the stench of shame for the people. It will accomplish nothing of value for them. It will be of no help nor any benefit. Instead, it will be shameful and also dishonorable. Okay, so it's worse than stupid. Yahweh's position is certainly clear enough. After all, the last time they tried this, he had to bail them out after 400 years of abusive slavery. But nonetheless, the brain trust misappropriating the fate of Israel decided to disregard their savior's appeal and to trust the tyrant. The religious and political tyrant, he's worthless. He's not worth the wasted breath. Delusional and vain, completely devoid of assistance. Therefore, I will call their indulgent intermission, Rahab, frenzied stupidity and pretentious idiocy. Well, at least God's got a sense of humor, but also a serious side. This also from the 30th chapter. So now, Mm -hmm. of your own volition, please come and include that which is actually written upon the stone tablets, and in association with them, that which is inscribed upon the written scroll. I want this to exist for the last days, for the final period of time, as an eternally restoring witness, an everlasting testimony forevermore. This serves as an affirmation that God is exceedingly critical of his people's approach to him then and now. It is yet another death blow to Judaism. Yahweh's condemnation of the religious and political approach of his people and their lack of regard for his testimony was intended to serve as a witness against them during the last days. And thus, between now and the time of Yahweh's return, in 2033, year 6,000 Yah. More than a history lesson. This is prophecy. And as such, Yahweh's condemnation of his people must reside upon today's Jewish political and religious leaders. Therefore, as we move to the next statement, we find God defining rebellion as being unwilling to listen to his Torah. He says that those who are contentious and defiant with regard to his teaching and guidance are stubborn, deceitful, vindicious. And in context, he is speaking to Jews today. So if you're religious, you may want to reconsider. In the voice of the creator of the universe, God Almighty, Yahweh said, For indeed, they are a rebellious, embittered, and revolting people, deluded and deceitful children. They are children who are unwilling to listen to Yahweh's Torah. Yahshua, Isaiah 39. 
Given every opportunity and advantage, Jews still managed to turn an express ticket to Shamaim, heaven, into a short trip to Sheol, hell. With Yahweh establishing his covenant with them, with God serving as their Savior, with Yahweh revealing his Torah in their presence and in their language, with God establishing their nation and choosing them as his people, with Yahweh focusing all of his prophetic pronouncements upon them, and then returning to reconcile his relationship with them. What is the excuse for being embittered, deceitful, and unwilling to listen? This was written 2,700 years ago. The voice is Yahweh's. So why hasn't anyone in the leadership of Yisrael noted the problem? Why aren't there any Jews trying to correct this problem? Are Jews going to continue to be obstinate and take their antagonism towards Yahweh to their grave while feigning obedience and some kind of sick religious charade? Enough already. There are a thousand reasons for Yahweh to despise Judaism, but let's address the big four. First, while studying their contentious Talmud, they pretend to be Torah observant. That's fraud. Second, they have chosen a delusional rabbinical religion over a covenant relationship with Almighty God. Boy, preferring the ghetto over a mansion? Third, they won't acknowledge Yahweh's name, even if their lives depended upon it. And they do. And fourth, their religion has made them unlovable, unacceptable, miserable, mendacious. And even God can't stand to be around them. And so now you know why so few will be there to greet Yahweh upon his return. And they, and this is because they say, to those who comprehend the revelation and the visionaries who understand the message, you should not be looking. God is saying, this is because they say to those who actually comprehend the revelation and the visionaries who understand the message, you should not be looking. None of your business. And to those receiving the message from God, who are in agreement with God, who are observant and intelligent, they say, you have not received this from God, nor has God selected you to reveal this to us especially in such a straightforward and unequivocal manner, so boldly and bluntly, so honestly and straightforwardly, so correctly and plainly, you should choose to speak to us in a flattering way, preferring delusions. So that's where I am in my translation of Yeshaya 24 and uh, and 30. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is for an introduction to God. That's pretty tough medicine to take. 
towards the end of the third volume of uh, what is uh, now well over 20 uh, volumes. Um, but nonetheless, that's what God is telling his people. And he's telling his people that today. So for those who would listen and say, I can't believe that you would criticize the rabbis and Judaism and you know, our culture and our politics, why would I not since God has told us yeah. to do so, since God himself is doing so? Are we to ignore the revelation of Yahshua? Are we to ignore the witness of Yahweh? Or do we to prefer delusions over the truth? You know, God would not have exposed and condemned Israel's current religious and political leadership had those individuals not misled his people and precluded him from forming a relationship with them. The reason he is exposing them and condemning them and the reason we are exposing them and condemning them is because they are the ones who are responsible for that reunion being so small. They had the Pied Piper. Take them all away. They are, they are the reason Jews mm-hmm. have been misled. And until such time as a few, Yehudim and Israelites, choose to discard the lies and liars and choose to trust and rely on Yahweh instead, they're going to follow the Pied Piper right to hell. Don't do it. They're a con job. All right, so with that... Uh, let me ask you, one, let me ask you two, little, sure. two little questions before we go. Mm-hmm. And, and what is so attractive about religion? I just... Yeah. I, I, I mean, if you never have anything to... If you don't have anything to look at other than that, then maybe well, you just deal first with... First of all, what's, just, what's, the of, what's the purpose of religion? Religion is perpetrated by those in power and always has been uh, as a mechanism of controlling those under them. Mm-hmm. So they claim God's authority uh, to rule. They claim that God is going to condemn them if uh, anyone who disagrees with them. They claim God's authority to torture uh, and kill those who disagree. So it's just a tool where religion and politics are combined to control people. That's always been the case. So why does one believe in religion? Because, well, throughout most of history, and even today in an Islamic country, to not accept the religion is to die. They will kill you. The Quran says if a Muslim disregards their faith, kill them. So that's always been incentive. That's pretty motivating, but... but, Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, and most Orthodox Christian denominations told anyone who would uh, not uh, convert, and particularly Jews, you either convert or die. They did the same thing. So there for a long time has been, uh, and still is in many countries, an incentive to be religious to stay alive. But that's the reason why God said, it's not just the deceivers, but the deluded as well that will be wiped away. So, so, so what became so unattractive? Another yeah. reason has okay. been that uh, okay. um, the politics 
has been um, so counterproductive. You, know, you look at the history of civilization, it's the history of war, it's the history of oppressing people, of subjugating them, of enslaving them, of, uh, of kings and, uh, and despots of one type or another um, attacking. Look at the Roman emperors and how vicious they were mm-hmm. and dishonest they were and, uh, and plundering everyone. But they were not alone. It was that's the nature of human civilization. And so they made life miserable for everyone. And the only way they could even pretend that it was tolerable was to say, oh, but, you know, if you go along with the program, you'll have a wonderful uh, life after this life, even though this life is miserable. So that was an incentive. It's still an incentive when somebody uh, loses a loved one and they can pretend that that loved one is up in heaven looking down on them and that they'll join them one day. It's a very happy delusion. I guess those are the reasons. There's another reason, Mm -hmm. perhaps, and that is when people are ignorant and irrational, they do not know, they do not think, well, it's really easy to believe. Go along with the program. You go into the church, everybody's raising their hands, they're singing the songs. I'm going to believe with all of them, right? There's also this myth that the majority are right. Well, according to God, the majority are always wrong. Now, I'm going to so, tell you that what Yahweh has yeah. to offer, magnificent. Well, that's my other question. I'm going to make what, you what immortal. What is so unattractive about yeah, immort- yeah. Immortality is a good thing. I'm going to perfect yeah. you. I, I've got some things that needs perfecting. I'm, I'm game with that. He says, I'm going to adopt you into my family. Can you imagine having a better father? than God Almighty. I am going to enrich you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to enlighten you. Those are the benefits of the covenant. Along with all those, that sounds pretty cool to me. We get to camp out in the universe that I created for you forever. Mm -hmm. And he only asks us five things of us, all of which are in our interest. So even, even in that regard, it's all benefits. So... I I would be the same with you. So the, my answer to your first question is there is no reason whatsoever to uh, to be religious. It is uh, what's my word for that? Um, stupid. Stupid. It is stupid. I, I just sometimes you have to after you read all that stuff and then knowing what we know and and I started out with yada yada seven translations ago, hardly what it is now, but wonderful, wonderful, wonderful that it was. And it, and all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I really saw an alternative other than being an atheist. Yeah. And I said, wow, that's that's a deal. And the more I got into it and shed more and more of uh, Christian commandments yeah. and yeah. realized that he's a real dad and he loves you and, and you screw up and he doesn't care yeah. as long as you stay on the path and you get better and, and that sort of thing and and what any protects you and then i look at your life when you wrote prophet of doom and with your with your name in the phone book i mean my god yeah. everybody else yeah. get, get, would be blown up duck it duck and, and for i'm cover saying the same and, stuff uh, on your show and and i have never had a right. day of fear in my life uh yep. because of what y'all's promises are and i'm going yeah all these deal. prophecies all, yeah, and all Pretty these good deal. Pretty good. And he's fun to be around. 
And yeah, I, I enjoy this. I mean, just reading it and studying it. Even yeah. before we ever go on the show, I've spent hours and hours uh, of whatever a lot of time I can get, and I go, "Wow, this is really cool. This is really cool." Yeah. You know, I'm looking at this. I'm looking. I got ten things on my computer right now, uh, all about this, and I'm going. What's not to like? Even if you don't like doing what I'm doing, why would you not want to read yeah. what he said in a language you can read it and understand it? And enjoy yeah, well, now we're, gonna, we're just, going to dispel a myth that uh, that is uh, often foisted uh, at us because I'm positive that Yahweh is going to return on uh, on uh, 6:22 p.m. I don't know how daylight savings uh, time is going to interact with uh, with that, but I don't know if that's standard time or daylight savings time. But uh, sundown on October 2nd. 2033. It is your 6,000 Yah. It is Yom Kippurim. That is when mm-hmm. Dode and Yahweh will return. And uh, five days later, the earth will be through that mm-hmm. transformation that Yahweh just spoke about. And we're going to celebrate mm-hmm. Sukkah as a Shabbat uh, for uh, a thousand years, exploring this universe and conversing and uh, enjoying our relationship with Yahweh. That's where we're headed. So in Zechariah, uh, we're uh, now in the 14th chapter. We uh, had just begun the seventh statement of the 14th chapter, Remi- you know, keeping in mind that the entirety of Zechariah exists for a singular purpose. It is a, a celebration and announcement of the fulfillment of Yom Kippurim, which is the day that Yahweh is returning to reconcile his relationship with that tiny remnant that will be uh, remain of Yisrael. Uh, and so this is what it says. And it shall be, Wahaya, it will exist as Echad, the one, the only, the exclusive, the unique, the certain, Yom, day, which you, he, is known. Yada, is revealed, is shown, is understood, is acknowledged, is distinguished and discerned. La, to approach. Yahweh. Yada, translated is known, tells us that Yahweh is revealing this to us so that we might know it. We might acknowledge it. We might even understand it. He's not making it known to us so that we wouldn't know it. This is the day of Yahweh's return, something that should be acknowledged and known by everyone. By using the phrase, it shall be the one, the certain, the unique, Ichad, mm-hmm. day which he becomes Yada known, we have yet another affirmation that Yahweh's return is tied to the day man's relationship with God is reconciled, when he becomes known to the remnant of his people. By using Echad, Yahweh is telling us there's something very special, singular, unique, about the timing of his return. In all of time, there is only one day which meets his requirements 
of that we can be certain. Now, there are two days, actually, on the Iowa's calendar that are extraordinary from God's point of view, that he makes a big deal over, that he says, this day is a, a celebration as if it were a Shabbat, no matter what day of the week it falls on. This day is essential to stem. This day is a chog. This day is a mikra. This day is a moed. This day is set apart. There's two of them. Matzah, which is the day that rabbinical Jews no longer celebrate. No celebrate. Ever. They twist mm-hmm. and pervert Passover and uh, have matzah be the ingredient that is no longer present as opposed to the recognition that matzah is the center of this celebration. Passover is part of chag matzah, not the mm-hmm. other way around. But God's already fulfilled that. He's fulfilled Pesach, matzah, Bakodim, and Shabuah. So this, speaking of the future of what's going to happen, cannot be the other supreme day, matzah, because matzah was fulfilled along with Pesach, matzah, Bakodim, and Shabuah. Teruah is our time. Teruah is yada yada. Teruah is what we're doing here, where we're sharing Yahweh's testimony with his people in hopes that they will listen. That isn't the one essential day. The essential day is the single most important day to Yahweh in all of time the day that he finally reconciles his relationship with Israel and with Yahudah. It is the only unfulfilled Moed Mikre that is essential, that is a Yom day to celebrate in this way. So, yes, there are seven special days on Yahweh's annual calendar. So in a general sense, we can be assured that he is telling us that his return will coincide with one of these unique days. But since the first four Mikre are fulfilled in order, all in Mm -hmm. 33 CE during the year 4000 Yah, the potential of dates is reduced to three. Cut it down to one. (laughs) The first unfulfilled Mikra, Teruah, is one of three harvests. So it's disqualified topically, but also because mm-hmm. as one of three, it's not unique. And since it's Yahweh's pattern has been to fulfill the Mikre in chronological order, there is but one day on God's annual calendar that meets the Zachariah 14.7 criterion and is consistent with his pattern, the Day of Reconciliations, Yom Kippur. It's interesting, of course, that that uh, the one day that I can't tell you specifically when it's going to be fulfilled, I can tell you that it'll be the first day of the seventh month. Between uh, here and here. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, between uh, now and, uh, and 2029. I, in fact, I would say between 2026, 2026. and 2029. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's four potential dates for the fulfillment of, uh, of Teruah. Uh, in terms of the the harvest of a very small number of his uh, covenant family before uh, 
all hell breaks loose in the time of Jacob's troubles. Uh, but because there's four of those potential, and I can't tell you which one of the four, I'm hoping that it's 2029 gives us the most possible time. And it mm-hmm. has the shortest intermission between the time that we are removed and the time that that yeah was too no, weeks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, return. Oh, on I'm Passover. sorry. I feel that. Yeah, yeah, on yeah, 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 yeah. So, <clears throat> so it's not Teruah, and that leaves us with uh, with uh, of Yom Kippur. Sukkah shelters is symbolic of the millennial Shabbat. It's not just a day. But instead, a thousand years of celebrating God's seven plus one pattern. Moreover, Sukkah is never celebrated as a day. It's celebrated as a week plus a day. Mm -hmm. Eight days. Therefore, Yom Kippurim, which is the most pronounced of the two Mikre with Yom Day emblazons in its name, shall be the one and only Yom he becomes known according to Yahweh. Oh, but what year is the question? Everything in the Torah and Prophets points to a pattern of six mankind plus one God equals seven perfection. We're even told that a day is like a thousand years with Yahweh, so it's all laid out for us throughout his witness. Between the genealogies revealed in the Torah, history, and archaeology, We know that Adam and Chawa were escorted out of the Garden of Eden in 3968 BCE. Yahweh met with Noach to discuss the impending deluge that would flood the region of the world in which men with the Neshama lived in 2968 BCE. This date is affirmed by the discovery of the Burkel meteor crater in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Madagascar which caused that deep upwelling of seawater that Yahweh spoke of, flooding the region up through the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, leaving 12 feet of sediment uh, in the wake of that 500-foot tsunami that raced all the way up to the Black Sea, converting the Black Sea in an instant from freshwater to saltwater, increasing the water level by 500 feet, burying the civilizations specifically that God was speaking of, and then bursting out the Bosphorus Straits. That's a phenomenal evidence. (laughs) (laughs) It is. What do you want? But I I guess it's easier to to call it a myth because uh, that'll make you more popular. Ah. The covenant was confirmed with Abraham on Mount Moriah in 1968 BCE was exactly 40 Yobel. 40 Yobel is, is 50 years, seven, seven of years plus one after Adam left Eden. So in 968 BCE, a thousand years thereafter, 20 Yobel, the cornerstone of Yahweh's temple on Mount Moriah was laid. Then exactly 40 Yobel after Abraham's prophetic dress rehearsal with Yishak, Yahweh fulfilled the Bikri of Pesach Passover, uneasted bread and firstborn children in 33 CE, 
that same Yobel year, the fourth Mikre, seven Shabbats, was fulfilled on the exact date, further establishing the pattern. There was even some evidence that the waters under the temple were poisoned in 1033 CE, reflecting the Bamidbar Numbers 5 divorce decree. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust, Israel was reborn. Just as Yahweh had foretold, his people returned to the land. And the next Yobel year just happens to be 40 Yobel from the fulfillment of the first four Mikre in 33 CE, making this 2033. 40 depicts the completion of a time of testing. And Yahweh, the Yobel represents what? A time that debts are forgiven, mm-hmm. everyone is free, free, and the lands returns to God. That's the model. Moreover, 2033 will mark 6,000 years since the expulsion from Eden, when redemption's calendar started to count down to the day of reconciliations, a return to Eden. The final 1,000-year period begins five days after Yah's return on the seventh Mikra, the Feast of Sukkah shelters, in which God camps out with his family for a millennium. Therefore, we can reasonably deduce that the one exclusive, unique, and certain day in which Yahweh will become known is Yom Kippurim in 2033, year 6,000 Yah. Further, Mizmore Psalm 102 speaks prophetically of the Holocaust, which occurred between 1932 and 1945. It states that the generation which experienced it will be the last. So determine how long after the Holocaust Yahweh's return will be and still be witnessed by the same generation it is instructive to know that the average life expectancy amongst Jews who survived the Holocaust was 85 years, with their descendants now expected to live 88 years on average. The maximum life expectancy is now 105 to 107 years. But if you take 88 years after 1945, that's 2033. So, What we said we were going to do is talk a little bit about uh, uh, this uh, myth that has been promulgated in the Christian New Testament. So at this point, it's hard to imagine, but should a Christian have uh, listened to us this far (laughs) into what is now, what we're speaking from now is the fifth volume of Yada Yahweh, which follows three volumes of an introduction to God. And, you know, the volumes are a scant, you know, 650 pages on average apiece. Uh, and easy, easy read, right? As an easy read, uh, this prophetic statement from Yahweh clears up one of the most beguiling delusions. No one knows the hour of God's return. Normally, we would only delve into the text of the Twistian New Testament to expose and condemn its message, but an exception can be made on this uh, occasion with the disciple Yaukanan and. Uh, two selections of Matthew which were plagiarized from the 
Ebonim, the Ebonites. They, as demonstrated in, if you'll read the Coming Home and the Questioning Paul volumes, recorded Yashiyah's oratory in Hebrew. And it was their eyewitness accounts of what's called the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, in which this is found, that were incorporated into what's now called the Gospel of Matthew. All the rest, pilfered from Mark or Luke, are added by Eusebius on behalf of Rome and Roman Catholicism in the 4th century. Nonetheless, let's compare Zachariah's testimony to what is recorded in Matthew 24. In Matthew's Greek translation of Yashaya's Hebrew conversation, translated twice from Hebrew to Greek and Greek to English, we find. But nevertheless, concerning the immediate vicinity of that one specific and definite day and hour, no one recognizes, not the messengers of heaven, only the Father, and only one who exists for all time. Matthew 24:36. Of the 18 pre-Constantine manuscripts of portions of Matthew, this passage is not included in any of them. There is a record, however, of those responsible for creating the Texas Receptus, Receptus of altering yeah. Yeah, the uh, alleged not even the sun remark so that it would match uh, Mark uh, 13.32. Therefore, when it comes to this passage, most scholastic tools are just rendered flatly unreliable. Equally troubling is that only one manuscript of Mark dating to the 1st through 3rd century CE exists, and it ends with the 12th chapter. This reliability problem is further compounded by the fact that Greek was already a translation of a translation of what Yosha said, because most of the Olivet Discourse was quoted from Zachariah, which was written in Hebrew. This leaves us with five different ways to explain these words. First, if we retain the not even the sun reference, it would require Yahusha to be deprived of Yahweh's nefesh soul, rendering his words and deeds irrelevant. He certainly could not have served as the Pesach lamb or fulfilled matzah if he did not have Yahweh's nefesh soul. Considering the fact that current scholarship confirms over 300,000 known variations and alterations between the Texas Receptus and older codices, I am certain that he said no such thing. And speaking of the Son, Yosha was not the Son of God. That distinction belongs to Dode. Further, the concluding line, only the Father, the only one who exists for all time, while accurate in its depiction of the mortality of the Passover lamb, destroys the myth that Jesus was God or eternal. Hmm. This known, the Greek as we uh, have it today, actually reads, not the messengers, agelos, of heaven, uh, aronos, if not the son. Yosha may be excluding himself from those who do not know, which resolves the problem, or he was suggesting that Dode, the actual son of God, 
does not know when he is returning, which is incredulous since he was a prophet and he spoke of the event. The second opinion predicated upon the removal of not even the sun requires us to assume that Yahweh's messengers, who are eternal spirits and thus able to experience time differently than we do, have no interest in knowing the timing of the most important event in world history. I suppose it's possible, since they are spiritual implements. (laughs) In the same passage, Yosha says that it's these very same messengers who are going to announce his arrival. Well, not not his arrival. Are going to announce the arrivals. Let's be accurate. The arrival. So, even if they were unaware, uh, they'll be informed in advance so that they can fulfill their mission. Okay, as for mankind, the universally ignorant interpretation requires us to make Yasaya's statement open-ended. That is to say, no one will ever know. But if this is the case, it requires us to question why God would provide an overwhelming amount of detail specific to his plan and his timeline and yet not want us to understand any part of it. I read Yasaya, he says, Yada, yeah. I want you to know. But uh, nonetheless, forget about the Hebrew. We ought not be dealing with the facts. What right do you have to talk to us so bluntly and boldly when you should be flattering us and in favor of our delusions? Confronted with thousands of useful clues and one poorly rendered passage which seems to negate their purpose, Christian theologians have almost universally held up the grain of sand while ignoring the mountain of evidence. Therefore, I don't think God was saying, you are so stupid that you'll never figure this out no matter how obvious I make it. Although, to be fair, that's kind of what he said uh, in Yasha. Okay, that aside. That aside. Our third alternative is also obvious. The first modern theologian to consider its implications within the context of God's timeline, his name was John Mill, who in 1707 accurately concluded that the verb oida in Matthew 24:36 was rendered in the present tense. Now, Hebrew does not have a present tense, but Greek does. Mm-hmm. So if Yahusha was accurately translated into Greek, he was not saying that no one will ever know or that no one would ever recognize the day, but only that at that specific moment in time, they were not aware of it. And, of course, they weren't. That said, while uh, Greek offers a present tense, as I've shared, there is none. In Hebrew, all Hebrew verbs are Mm -hmm. throughout time. Now, worth noting is that not only did Mill close the case on close-mindedness with his analysis, his continued investigations prompted him to question the accuracy of the Texas Receptus. He himself found 30,000 errors in the universally accepted and yet overwhelmingly flawed document, which underlies uh, 
uh, early English Bible translations. More specifically, Oida translated recognizes in the passage is the weakest of the three forms of Greek words rendered as no. It is primarily, its primary meaning is actually see, not know, and it conveys something more along the lines, no one sees, pay attention to, perceives, notices, discerns, discovers, or observes, therefore remotely understands or comprehends the one specific day. In classical Greek, Oida denoted intuitive understanding and being acquainted with something theoretically. Knowledge based upon evidence is gnosko in uh, Greek. That's not the word that was used. And complete knowledge is epigonosko. So all Yosha actually said, should he have been translated into Greek correctly, was that no one recognizes the day because they're not paying attention to the evidence. It's like the day. Yeah. Yep. Even more specifically, Oida was written in the perfect indicative tense. Such verbs describe a completed action which occurred in the past, which produced a resulting state which exists in the present. The mm -hmm. present tense, therefore, conveys that the present state of affairs at the time was spoken, uh, that this was spoken, existed because of a previous condition. The indicative tense simply denotes that the condition is real. This means that the ubiquitous failure of the disciples and everyone else at that time to understand Yosha's mission within the context of the Torah, Prophets, and Psalms had resulted in the present condition of being unable to recognize what had been predicted. Virtually no one recognizes this specific indefinite day because their perspective is backwards and their thinking is convoluted. The evidence is here and those who want to know can know. The reason for this is, uh, as a rule, is that Christians do not study Yahweh's Torah and thus do not understand the Beirith or the Mikray. And they don't even know what the Mikray represent or when they transpire. If you don't know what the Bikrei represent and when they transpire, you have a zero chance of understanding the Bereshith Genesis 1 timeline or its prophetic implications. And not one in a thousand connects the parallel passages in Zechariah to Matthew. The fourth option relative to understanding this passage is tied to the fact that Yosha quickly transitioned in the Olivet Discourse to a discussion regarding the Teruah harvest. While the day of the year of this end gathering will occur uh, is known to those who study the Torah, Prophets, and Psalms, the year itself that it will transpire, as we mentioned earlier, it could occur, I don't think so, in 2026, possibly in 2027 would occur in 2028, hopefully in 2029, giving us the most time possible. In this regard, Yosha's answer was, uh, to the degree it was accurately rendered again, transmitted and translated, was ingenious. Rabbis have substituted the Babylonian Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, for Yahweh's Teruah, shout for joy and signal the warning. 
Rabbis called it the hidden day that no one knows, only the Father. It was the one day of the year that Satan accused Jews of being bad before God. So they blew their trumpets to confuse the devil. And they kept the day secret so that Satan would miss his appointment. Therefore, by saying that uh, he would come for his family on the day that no one knows, only the Father, Yosha was telling his disciples that the harvest of saved souls would occur on Teruah, now religiously mischaracterized as Rosh Hashanah. The consequence of corruption, folks. Now, the fifth consideration, and we're going to do this as the program still records. It will no longer be broadcast, but all those listening on their phones will still hear this, and anyone that chooses to listen to the archives will be able to pick this up. But I'd like to make our way through it so that we start fresh uh, next week. The fifth consideration for interpreting this statement is based on the similarities between it and the counterpart in Zachariah. The subject, timing, context, and word selections are virtually identical, meaning it is likely that Yahusha was answering his disciples by citing one of several prophets who provided the answer, particularly Zechariah, whose entire prophecy was written to present the answer. It shall be the one day which is known to approach Yahweh. Zechariah 14.7. The translation of this Hebrew citation into Greek, then Latin, back into Greek, and finally to English, without the benefit of an early manuscript and thus tormented by many over three centuries of religious tampering, changed it to. But nevertheless, concerning the immediate vicinity of that one specific and definite day and hour recognizes not the messengers of heaven, only the Father, the only one who exists for all time. The quotes are so similar, I think Yosha was telling his disciples that the answer to their question could be found in Zachariah, which is true. It is not about knowing, but instead recognizing where to look. Zachariah continues and explains, It shall be the one day which is known to approach Yahweh. Neither day nor night will exist. Then at that timing of sundown, there will be light. Now, I've gone so far as to say that it's not Mm -hmm. just on Yom Kippurim, which begins on the second and continues through the third, a Sunday and Monday uh, in 2033, year 6000, Yah, when Yahweh will return. I've said it's going to be at sundown at 6.22 p.m. in Jerusalem on October 2nd, 2033. Why do I say that? Because that's what God just said. Neither day nor night will exist. (laughs) Then at the timing of sundown, there will be light. Why is day and night not existing? Because Because we have... We have experienced the world doing what the United States has done and, uh, 
and talk itself into war. And there's going to be a nuclear exchange. And we're going to have an asteroid that's going to hit us. We're going to have earthquakes that create tsunamis. And man is going to make a, such a mess of this planet that the sky will be obscured. And at that time, when Yahweh needs to clean the air, the land, and the sea to make ready his return of the earth to the conditions of uh, Eden, you're not going to need a sun. The sun's light will be irrelevant because Yahweh's light will arrive. Now, all of Yahweh's Bikre began at sunset at the conclusion of the prior day. Therefore, the day of reconciliations, which is the 10th day of the seventh month, starts at twilight on the ninth day and culminates at sunset on the 10th. And since Yahweh is touching down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, overlooking Moriah, his glorious return will occur at sunset on October 2nd, 2033, which will occur at 6.22 p.m. It will be approaching lunchtime on the American East Coast, 11.22 a.m., based upon the seven-hour time zone differential. However, Yahweh has testified that on this day, the sun's light will be either so obscured by smoke and debris in the air that it will be indistinguishable from night, or his light will be so brilliant that there never again will be any darkness, or both. Therefore, since we will not be able to use the normal transition from day to night, Yahweh has provided instructions which we can deploy to ascertain the exact moment of his arrival. To be consistent with the Torah, God must arrive within the specified 24-hour period he designated for the Moed Mikra of Kippurim. And while that could be any time between sunset on the 9th of Tishri to twilight on the 10th, our October 2nd and 3rd, 2033, I think the reference to Ereb, sunset, is both literal and symbolic. Almost the whole day. Yep. Ain't going to come at the end. Why would God, at the end of the day, it's no longer uh, Kippurim? So if it's done the following day, it's no longer Kippurim. It ceases to be Kippurim. No, he's uh, he's going to return on Kippurim and to celebrate. Because, by the way, there's a lot that has to happen on this day. The reason he's coming back with Dode is Dode will be dressed Mm -hmm. as the high priest. He's going to perform the work that needs to be done, sprinkling the, uh, the blood of the bull first and then of the, uh, of, uh, the goat on the Kaporeth mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which will be raised specifically for this event. And to reconcile the relationship consistent with the Torah, Yahweh must do this, and Dode is the person he has announced is going to perform that. So Dode has to perform it on Yom Kippurim. He sure as heck can't perform it if Yom Kippurim is over at the time they return. Doesn't take a genius here to figure this out. 
As such, his return will occur at the beginning of Yom Kippurim and not after it is over. Open your calendars and set your clocks. Yahweh will return to planet Earth at 6.22 p.m. Jerusalem time, 11.22 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on October 2nd, 2033. The dawning of the Day of Reconciliations. I only wish that the number of people, particularly of Yehudim, would have been in the millions or at least hundreds of thousands, even tens of thousands. But alas, it is not to be. The chasm that was cut by the great rift formed by the earthquake swallowing up man's religious grime will be filled with living waters. It will transpire on that day that living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and half towards the Western Sea. The Eastern Sea is the Dead Sea, which will no longer be dead. And the Western Sea is the Mediterranean. Now, I particularly like the way this passage reads in an interlinear uh, with the Hebrew word order. And it will be on that day that they will flow out waters of living ones from Jerusalem, half of them to the sea, eastern former, and half of them to the sea, western, final. Living waters is one of the seven metaphors that Yahweh uses to describe himself and his purpose. His symbols are light, the bread of life, the upright pillar, the living waters of the set-apart spirit, the rock of our salvation, the word, and the family. As I said, the Eastern Sea is the Dead Sea. So since uh, Kadmoni also means former, it will thrive again with life. The earthquake will create an exit to the sea for the salt and mineral saturated waters which are fed by the Jordan River. Opening what is currently the world's deepest fault, it would cause what is now dead to support life. These living waters would flow down from Jerusalem, which is perched several thousand feet above the headwaters of the Dead Sea, and ultimately flow out through the Gulf of Aqaba into the Red Sea. Moshe and the children and the Israelites crossed the Gulf of Aqaba into the Arabian Peninsula uh, when fleeing Pharaoh during the Yatza Exodus. The waters which Yahweh parted to save his people will save them again. You know what also those waters will You know what those waters will deluge? You know what is between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba? I say Dead Sea and Aqaba. Something um, that, uh, that most Arabia. people would... No, 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 that's further than Arabia. Oh, okay. No, no, Petra. no, no, I got you. Petra. Oh, oh, oh why, yeah, why is Petra important for Yahweh to destroy? Because Islam was not created in Mecca 
created in Petra. Muhammad never lived in Mecca. He lived in Petra. And the fact that, that it was very late editions of the Quran that added the line, change your quibla, it's not difficult for you. Well, all of the early mosques pointed to Petra. And it was only after there was a civil war between the various factions mm-hmm. in Islam that uh, yeah. they moved the black stone of the Kaaba from Petra, where it was located, to Mecca. And they only had to change one letter because Petra is in the Becca Valley. And all they had to do was change the B to an M. And now it was Mecca. And and there isn't a single statement about the birthplace of Islam, which matches Mecca. Not one. They all contradict the notion that it could have been there. And they all speak accurately of what was once in Petra. If you want to see the birthplace of the most satanic religion man has ever conceived, look at Petra. Dried up and shriveled up. Guess what destroyed it? An earthquake. So that it was no longer inhabitable. And now there will be another earthquake that will create living waters flowing down from Jerusalem into the Dead Sea and out towards the Gulf of Aqaba, which it will flood and wash away the birthplace of the most caustic religion man has ever conceived. God has a very long memory. Black, yes. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So anyway, we'll uh, we'll pick this up uh, at this place next week. I realized that I I um, uh, covered a lot of material that uh, you, we weren't expecting to uh, to cover, but uh, it's your oh, fault, no. Kirk. You uh, you heard yeah, me read part fault. of it to you before the program hey, started, and you didn't know I was going to go right to the beginning. My fault. I take the book. I uh, I did know that the beginning of it was profound, and it yeah. is profound. Uh, and it so I thought I would share it in context. Um, so that took a lot of our program uh, this evening, but I think it was important for our, our Jewish audience to uh, to know this is yeah. what God has said, and we want you to be on the celebratory side of his return, not among those depopulated. And you have every opportunity to, to do that. You and those you love can choose to be on the populated side. Um, and so it was important to start there. Then even with uh, this uh, presentation of trying to clear up the timing, I didn't feel comfortable beginning where we left mm-hmm. off last week. I, th- I thought we needed to view it all in, uh, in context. So I did uh, uh, cover uh, a lot of the, mat- the material twice. Uh, but repetition okay. is how we learn. So I hope that uh, is not Absolutely. troubling to anyone. Uh, this is really a, a profoundly important conclusion. Uh, the day of Yahweh's return. It's uh, essential. It's part of, in fact, not part of it, it's the entirety of Zachariah, the prophet. 
Yashaya uh, speaks of it vociferously, as does uh, Yermaya. Uh, the events mm-hmm. that lead up to it are detailed by Daniel, uh, by Ezekiel. Um, it is uh, outlined in the Torah. Uh, it's spoken of uh, consistently by Dode. So this is something Yahweh wants us to know. And it is important to us because the clock is ticking. We know how much time we have left. How little time we have left. Yeah. How little time we have left. And we're going to spend it as, uh, as well as possible because while it's obvious we're not very effective. Uh, that uh, we, uh, uh, the number of Yehudim that are going to participate in Yom Kippurim will be small. Um, there will at least be 7,000. And uh, that's worth celebrating. And I don't know how many, if any, of those 7,000 would be there had it not been for our love affair with Yashaya's prophecies, Moshe's Torah, Dod's Mizmor, Yahweh's words in general. Um, so we're going to celebrate the fact that um, they're going to be wonderful people and that we're going yes, to sir. enjoy eternity together and that that number is going to, uh, uh, should include you everyone who is listening to this program. You're invited, you're welcome. But it also means that we're not going to have to endure the nincompoops. There won't be any uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's. There won't be any, uh, any Joe Biden's. There are not going to be any Camilla Harris's. Thank God for that. There won't be any, uh, any Putin's. There won't be any Marcion's. There won't be any popes, there won't be any rabbis, there won't be any imams, uh, and thank goodness there won't be any progressives. So we'll actually be able to have an intelligent conversation. There will be no thought police, there'll be no social media, um, no indoctrination going to be a marvelous time and so those who are there are are going to be of like mind of like spirit Uh, they're going to enjoy evidence and reason they're going to feast upon knowing they're going to enjoy the liberation we all experience in Yahweh and so for them we do this for them we write these books for them we have this uh, this website and we are now progressing in social media to get the message out to all who will listen. So I thank the Covenant family for making this possible. Thank you, Kirk, for being part of this uh, program. We'll pick this up this time. Pick this up this time uh, next week as we conclude our review of Zachariah and then turn our attention to the last of Yahweh's prophets, uh, suitably named the messenger, Malachi. May Yah bless. Happy Shabbat to one and all. Good night. Shabbat Shalom. Night out.
Yeah, lots of good conversation in the uh, chat room tonight. Very much worth reading. North. 